this wonderful passage on Malachi 1 and these five verses. God is at work in all things, bringing about his purposes. But recognising the hand of God at work in our lives is not always easy. Uh, We have the desire to, to know what God is doing. And that desire is in all kinds of questions we ask. Why, why is this happening to me? Um, especially when we're suffering. But yet we're met with a great silence because we don't know why this is happening to me. I lose my job or I'm offered a new job or new neighbours move in next door or I miss my bus for work. There's thousands of things happen to us day by day, week by year, year by year. Where is God in all these happenings? Today there's a religious industry being built which tells us of God's actions and intentions as visions and prophecies and words of knowledge and signs and wonders. Uh, These are sometimes not very different, frankly, to tarot cards and Ouija boards and tea leaves that are used to explain life to the gullible and unwary. It's coming to Christianity, though, in opposition to and correction of secularist thinking, the kind of godless worldview which studiously avoids all references or any reference to God and denies all possibility of answer to prayer or of God's direct intervention into the affairs of this world. And so we will discuss ethics or the meaning of life without any reference to God. Let me give you two illustrations from my own life for a moment or two here. First happened when I was in high school in a history exam. It was a terrible shock to my system. I was asked the questions, a series of questions on Australian history, such as the 1808 Rum Rebellion against Governor Bly, what were the causes of it? Well, having become a Christian the previous year, so this must have been about year nine because I became a Christian in year eight, I set out to give a Christian answer, including in particular that the reason for the Rum Rebellion, I remember, was taken by me to be Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden that caused sinfulness in human heart and led to the Rum Rebellion and other things. My history teacher was furious He was sure I was trying to take the mickey out of him uh, and if not expressing my own kind of teenage rebellion against him. Uh, I was given a failure for the exam as one would expect. In fact it wasn't just a kind of mere failure, it was a total and abysmal failure and a very kind but very, very strong and stern lecture in the hallway I remember in front of a lot of people. Christianity, I was told, was not to be brought into the history class or ever written in an academic exercise. It was, of course, a church school I was in. The second happened when I wrote a review many years later of the history of the Diocese of Sydney that had just been published and I pointed out that it was an institutional history, not a gospel history, because it failed to see the hand of God anywhere in the 200 years of the ministry of the Anglican Church in Sydney, which of course may be true, but I certainly hope is not true that God had nothing to do with us for 200 years. 
Again, it were historians who attacked my review on this subject, complaining that I didn't understand history or historians, for they could not ever report on God's intervention. It was beyond the knowledge and competence of historians to do so. And so we discuss history, even the history of Christianity, without God. Just as we discuss Christian lives without God. We never see God's hand in anything. We never see the answer to prayer in anything. We never thank God for what he has done. We can't even talk about God. So in reaction to this overwhelming censorship of God, which is really apparent in any newspaper that you care to read today, when Christians are involved in things, the Christian parts of their comments are usually snipped out and the story is read as if there is no reference to the Christian belief of the person. With the reaction to this, we've grown up visions and voices. The brigade who wish to constantly talk about God and their contact with him, explaining and interpreting, predicting, and knowing God's intention about every little step of everything that happens to them in life. And yet so much of this is frankly pious humbug, or worse still, impious blasphemy as it says God is doing things that he is not doing and so much of it is indistinguishable from superstitious magic it may even be demonic and it's certainly dangerous but yet surely we can see the hand of God at work in this world we're not meant to stay in ignorance and darkness of God operating in the world it's not as if God has stopped involving himself in the affairs of this world So how can we know things that God is doing without just going and taking ourselves into superstition and magic? Well, today we start this series on Malachi, the next of our minor prophets. It's important to study these prophets at the end of the Old Testament here because they are God's word to us. And if we muzzle God's word to us, then surprise, surprise, we won't know what God has to say to us. And this is part of God's word to us. But it's a part of the Bible that many of us, well, I heard someone say the cathedral Bibles haven't been opened at this page very often before. And so you most likely in your Bibles before you have a fairly pristine page which nobody has marked and please don't. But before we actually look at these even first five verses, let me raise with you another issue that's at the backdrop of this passage. That is the issue of being a victim in the victims in life. For today in Australia, many people view themselves as victims, victims of the cruel fate that life has dealt them, always seeing the glass as half empty. It's not my fault. I was born into poverty. I was born left-handed. I was born with curly, unmanageable hair. I have two left feet. It's, it's nothing to do with me. It's not my fault. My parents divorced when I was young and I had a terrible teacher at school and I was terribly bullied and and they always picked on me. And so it goes on. I am the victim and that is how I approach life as somebody who has been victimised by life throughout and that's why it's not my fault that everything's wrong in life. It is in fact, of course, a godless and fatalistic response to life that ignores our Heavenly Father and replaces him with cruel fate the cards that have been dealt to me. But sadly, Christians can sometimes imbibe this cultural disease of victimology. 
I'd like to work in this industry, but I was never given a chance. I'd like to marry, but nobody suitable has come along. They're all dorks and wimps and wusses. And that's just the girls. You should see the men. And I'd like to have travelled overseas and to study, but we didn't have the money and I had to look after my sick relative or aged relative. And there's all these excuses as to why my life has been deprived, as if somehow it is a deprivation to have to look after somebody. Sometimes in the disappointments in life, Christians are tempted to even blame God, not seeing him as our loving father, but as a mean-spirited spoiler, never providing anything for my needs and wants. And Israel, we're getting to Malachi at last, Israel was giving to just this feeling of victimisation also. They were supposed to be God's people, his special chosen nation. But they weren't mighty. They weren't powerful. They weren't controlling their own destiny or choices. They weren't ruling over the other nations of the world, but always under the threat of being ruled over by the other nations. They were small fry in the world of politics, only one step from destruction. God seemed to promise a lot to them, but he seemed to deliver not much. He was powerful and strong, and yet they were weak and unloved, small, poor, despised, dependent, threatened, their crops failed, and nothing seemed to go right with them. In Malachi's time, they'd returned from the Babylonian captivity, but they'd returned with high hopes of the new final golden age fed by the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. But all they met was with difficulty. Oh, it was partly their fault, but the prophet Haggai came to them, as we saw a few months ago now, and they repented in response to Haggai's message, but they were still poor. They were still beaten. They were still hard-pressed. Which brings us to Malachi 1 and the argument of God with Israel and his argument about Jacob and Esau. For the Israelites are asking the victim's question in verse 2. See, have you loved us? I mean, where is the love? I don't feel the love. You say you love me, but let me feel the love that you're supposed to have for me. I can't see it. If you love me so much, how, how come I'm in the mess that I'm in? And God's answer is Jacob and Esau, the twin sons of Isaac. God had chosen one, Jacob, and he deserted the other, Esau. It had nothing to do with their merit. It wasn't because one was good and the other was bad. As Paul pointed out later in the the letter to the Romans, chapter 9, referring to Malachi 1, he says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated which, as you can see, taken from Malachi 1, verse 2 here. God so chose Jacob that Esau looked rejected. God so loved Jacob that Esau looked hated. Now, we have to be careful not to misunderstand the Hebrew language and Semitic form of thinking and expression, which was 
quite commonly using hyperbole, extreme statements, in strong contrast to make a point. You remember Jesus in Luke chapter 14 where he says, if you do not hate your father, mother, brother, sister, yes, your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, if you just take it on surface level, Jesus is saying you've got to hate your family, but he's the same one who also says you've got to love your enemies. It's very difficult if your family's your enemies, of course. But that is pushing the point of language. That's misunderstanding the character of preaching. Preachers love to use hyperbole. There was a great preacher in Britain some time ago now, in the late last century. He was a fabulous preacher, one of the great ones of all time. But I've noticed in every sermon he preaches, the verse he's looking at is the most important verse in the Bible. doesn't matter which sermon he's on, it's always the most important verse in the Bible. There were a lot of most importance, and he has not understood the nature of the superlative. There can only be one most important, but every sermon he found it. Now that's just a hyperbole, that's just a character of the preacher, that's just a way of saying, this, this is, I want you to concentrate, this matters. When Jesus says you must hate, in Luke's Gospel, it's interesting, in Matthew's Gospel, it's toned down into the logic of, you must love me more than. Which is what is being meant by hate, but the sermon that says hate is the sermon that gets you sitting up and paying attention. That, that's the one that rattles your cage because you've now got to think out, well, what does this mean? Why is Malachi referring to Jacob and Esau here? Because Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Esau was the father of that other nation, Edom. And the history of the two nations demonstrated God's love for Jacob, Israel, and his hatred of Esau and Edom. Israel had been restored after the Babylonian captivity. They had returned to the promised land. They had started to rebuild the nation. And this was miraculously unexpected, totally unexpected by them, even though the prophets had foretold it. Suddenly, Babylon, the greatest nation in the world, collapsed overnight. It was an astonishing collapse. The only parallel I can really be thinking of this is, is the kind of collapse, the implosion of, of the Eastern Bloc in the late 1980s and early 1990s, where that kind of communist bloc that looked like it was going to take over the world in just a matter of a year or so kind of crumbled and the, the wall in Berlin which stood so firm was just ripped down by the people overnight. Well, so Babylon just, it was the world power and yet it just collapsed under the Persian conquest. But what was even more astonishing was when Persians took over Babylon and the Jews were the slaves of Babylon, instead of then pushing the Jews one step further down so that you had the Persians leading the Babylonian slaves who held the Jewish slaves, what they did was they released the Jewish slaves. Not only released them, sent them home. Not only sent them home, but they sent them home with the money to rebuild their society and their civilization. It had to do with the way Persians ran government as opposed to the way Babylonians ran government. Each of the world powers do it differently. Uh, the, the English did it by giving people knighthoods. The French did it by giving people citizenship. You run an empire in different models. The Assyrians did it by relocating everybody into different parts of the empire and breaking up family nations. The Babylonians did it by bringing everybody into the centre and making them the slaves. The Persians did it by setting up governments 
and having the Persian spies living there the whole time. So everyone was running their own government, but with a Persian spy reporting back what was happening. Each had their different system, but the, you can understand the Jews in, in Babylon were astonished. The Persians came, and then the slaves were sent back to Judah with money and some of the temple gold, etc., to rebuild Israel, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild their temple, and start their nation again. They saw it truly as the miraculous work of the hand of God because the prophet Isaiah had prophesied it was going to happen. Jeremiah had prophesied it was going to happen. Ezekiel had prophesied it was going to happen. And then, to the astonishment of everybody, it happened. It may not be as wonderful as you may expect, but don't forget that it has happened. And if it has happened, you should count your blessings and... God restored his chosen one. And you don't think you've been loved? Well, look at Esau. Look at Edom, his descendant nation. It's been destroyed and not only has been destroyed, you watch. It will always be destroyed. It will never be restored like Israel was restored. Verse 3 speaks of the hill country of Edom will become wastelands, the heritage of the homes of jackals. And even though Edom may wish to rebuild, they'll never be able to. They will never succeed, for God was against them. Verse 4, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Edom will never again rule their land as a people but will always be under God's anger now some of us may reel a bit at verse 3, verse 4 verse 3 God hating a people verse 4 God being angry forever but here are five very quick points to remember number one our view of God must come from reality not shape reality. It, it's not for us to make up what God will do, won't do, should do, shouldn't do. It's for us to come to terms with what God does, what he is like. And so the second point is like it. Our view of God must come from revelation, not from our ideas. I, mean, I like to think of God as, well, bully for you. You know, I mean, I like to think of lots of things, but that doesn't mean they're real. I like to think I can fly. I like to think I can play cricket for Australia, but it's impossible. I catch too many catches. So I like to think, but that doesn't mean it's a reality. And I like to think, God. what does God say about himself? Third point. Our problem often, though, in these things is, we're actually a bit ignorant of Esau and Edom. Most of us don't know much about the history of Edom or the history of Esau, do we? But remember Esau? He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup in Genesis 25. He didn't value his inheritance. He did not value God. He didn't live for eternity. He lived for immediate gratification. He was one of the first sensualists in the Bible. He was just living for the now. And he rejected God's plans for him. And fifthly, the Edomites 
though they were Israel's brothers, they didn't act as brothers to Israel. They stood in the way of the Exodus. When the, when the people of Israel were trying to get into the promised land, the Edomites didn't help. And worse, when Jerusalem was being plundered by the Babylonians, they rejoiced and joined in the plunder and were only too glad to see Judah destroyed, as we heard about in Obadiah the prophet. So God's promised the destruction of Edom which is detailed for us in the book of Obadiah, God's judgment on Edom was a deserved judgment. Sure, God chose Jacob and didn't choose Esau before they were born. But by the time God punishes Esau, he's punishing Esau for what Esau has done. In its consistent rejection, both as the man Esau and the nation Edom that that flowed from him, were in consistent rejection of God. But let's return to the question in the text of Malachi. The victim's question, well, but how have you loved us? Where do you see the hand of God? Well, the two questions really are much the same thing in the time of suffering. And the answer is a slightly strange and unexpected one. You see the hand of God in the destruction of Edom and in the restoration of Jerusalem. For that's where we see how great God is in all the world. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord. Beyond the borders of Israel, great is the Lord. For he is the Lord not only of Israel but of the nations, Persia, Babylonia and Edom. So even beyond God's own people, we can see the hand of God at work and more, we can see God fulfilling his promises fulfilling the word that he gave by the prophets. For you see God's hand at work where the word that has been given tells us what to expect to see and then it happens. God told that Jacob would be served by Esau, told that the younger would rule over the elder, that the younger would be the heir, the chosen one, not the older. That's contrary to the nature of life. The nature of life is the firstborn gets the inheritance and the younger serves the elder. That's the normality. But yet there's something strange going to happen. In this family, the younger's going to get the inheritance and the elder's going to be called to serve the younger and that's what happened with Jacob and Esau. Right through to Judah and Edom. Judah is the chosen heir of God and Edom's not. God gave his word that it would be like this. And when Israel was taken into captivity in Babylon and the Edomites were taunting them and cheering, it didn't look like God's word was right. But now look again, says God. Look at what you see. The nation of Israel has been restored and Edom is in ruins. And what's more, Edom will never be restored. The nation that is restored is God's nation. So Malachi is saying to his contemporaries that the events demonstrate the promises and revelation of God. Jacob is loved while Esau is hated. Israel is restored while Edom is destroyed. It's turning out just as God has promised it would turn out. Israel is the loved and forgiven one. Edom is the hated and condemned one. God is fulfilling his word to you. Not giving you what you think or what you deserve, but giving you what he promised and bringing about his purposes. 
Now, friends, this is still the case. The proof of the pudding is still in the eating. You still can see what God has promised in the past is that which has come to take truth. It's still there. I mean, hands up if you've ever met somebody who is Jewish. Uh, Hands up anybody who has not met somebody who is Jewish. There's a couple of people. We must introduce you to some because they're everywhere around the world of the Jewish community. Most of us have met them or know them or at least see them in medicine, in politics, in arts, in music, in engineering, in filmmaking, in banking. Their contribution to the world far exceeds their numbers. But hands up anybody who's ever met an Edomite. No, there won't be any hands. You never come across an Edomite. You never will come across an Edomite. Edomites aren't here anymore. God promised they wouldn't be and they're not. God promised they'd never be restored and they haven't been. God promised Israel would be. And they are still around to this very day, thousands of years later. The Edomites were never bigger and more stronger than the Israelites. The Israelites not bigger and stronger than the Edomites. But when Israel was taken off into captivity, it looked like the end for Israel, and yet it wasn't. It looked like Edom would succeed, but it didn't. God's promises by the prophets are one of the indications of the truth of God's word and the existence of God in this world. That is where you see the hand of God. Over and again, the atheists like Mr Dawkins look for the hand of God where God's hand has never been. And then they say, oh, I can't find God. Well, if you look where he isn't, you won't find him. It's like the small child closing their eyes and saying, I can't see you. You're not there. It's an absurdity. You've got to look where God says he will be. And he said he would be in Judah and in Edom, loving one, hating the other. And that is what has happened. And that's why Paul uses Malachi 1 in in Romans 9. For Christian victims are much the same as Malachi. God was reminding us that God has spoken and his word has not failed. He promised Abraham and his offspring that they would rule the world and bring blessing to all the nations of the world. He promised that this would be true of the son of Isaac, from Jacob would come the blessings of the world. And then he promised that of the tribes of the children of, of Jacob, it is Judah who would be the father of the one who would bring blessings to all the world. He promised a hardening of the hearts of Israel to bring salvation to the nations. And of course we see all this taking place through the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the son of Judah, the son of David, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And through this one Jew has come blessing of the God of Abraham, to all the nations of the world. It was promised in the Old Testament. It has happened in our history. There you see the hand of God at work, just where he said you would see his hand at work. But to see God's hand at work, you need to do what you are doing right now. That is putting on your glasses. That's the only way you can bring the world into clear focus if you've got wonky eyesight, which we all have. The glasses we're putting on... It's the Bible. For this is where God tells you that you can understand the world and you can understand him and you can see him interacting with the world. 
When we do that, we see that Christians are not the victims of life. We're the victims of sinful rebellion against God and our own foolishness. But that is our expectation foretold by God. But we're not the victims of life, but rather we are, as the Apostle Paul says, conquerors through the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn with me as we finish to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, it's page 1138, 1138. 1138. And notice verse 28 there. Verse 28, left-hand page, left-hand column, halfway down, verse 28. And we know, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We know God is at work in everything in our lives to bring about his purpose for our lives. And that's what his purpose is. I don't necessarily know why I missed the bus yesterday or why I couldn't find a car parking spot this day, but I know in principle that God has done both of those things so as to make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ so that ultimately I will stand in the, in the, in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I know also that the sufferings of this world, and we all go through sufferings in this world, that the sufferings of this world will not take me away from God's plans and purposes. For look how the chapter ends up in verse 37, Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what happens in this world, I am being conformed to the image of his Son. That is what is happening. God is working his purposes out for his people. We don't always know the details of it, but we can always see that it is for our good he is working and we must trust him in it. The communists of the Eastern Bloc were like the Edomites in the time of Judah. They looked like they were in control of everything and they tried in their atheism to suppress Christianity and for 70 years they seemed totally successful but where are they now? Boris Yeltsin, the leading communist of the world, wound up with a church funeral in a cathedral that he himself organised to be built. Just as Leningrad went back to its name of St Petersburg. Short term, the world can look like it's winning, but we are sure that nothing will separate us from the Lord Jesus Christ and from the love of God. For he is working his purposes out in our lives. And, as Malachi is told, your eye, own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. He brought down that communist atheistic block, and he will overcome whatever problems you and I may have in life. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are great indeed beyond the borders of Israel and that all our lives are under your sovereign control. And We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give to us such faith and trust and confidence in you, working out your plans and purposes for our life, that we will not be worried and anxious or believe the evil one in his accusations when things go wrong in our life and we don't like what is happening but we will know of your goodness and your mercy and that you are working for our good, that we may ever keep our confidence in you and the victory you have won in the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we ask this. Amen.